Well, this is a, uh, a morning where we're going to celebrate communion at the end of the sermon. So um, it's an opportunity to uh, think about the cross, think about the Lord's forgiveness and grace in your life. If, uh, if you do need to pick up one of these, um, they're just in the back. You can nudge your husband and make them serve you and, or, or whoever um, that, you know, we'll probably pass the basket around at the end. But, you know, just feel free to do that. Um, communion is an is a incredible privilege. It's symbolic, just like baptism, and uh, it doesn't give you anything in terms of saving grace, but it is a means of grace in terms of um, sanctification, your spiritual growth. It's a way for your heart to connect with the gospel afresh and to think about how the Lord is giving um, you grace to grow. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord, and he preps us for the mission um, to, to go out and go into hard situations for the sake and name of Christ and to face hard trials that are unexpected or things that you're grinding through or growing through. He gives us uh, so much grace and he does it through the ministry of the word of God and the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, Matthew 10 is where I would invite you to turn again to this morning. Matthew's gospel in chapter 10 is a kind of a, a a slow plod through a chapter that is heavy and meaty and matters um, in the Christian life. I uh, left off a couple verses at the end of my last sermon and wanted to pick up there to finish them off because we need them. Um, It's powerful. The Word of God is powerful. We need every verse that we can chew up and and just kind of gather into our own hearts and lives. I was stirred early this morning. I was finishing off the the sermon preparation time, it's kind of habit for me to wake up. Sometimes I just wake up. The, I think this morning the dogs woke me up, but, you know, the Holy Spirit was in that, stirring my heart. And so there I was, and it was, oh, dark 30, and I heard this noise behind me. I was down in my dining room table area with my stuff spread out, and I hear this sort of grinding or scratching sound behind me. And I've got a bay window right behind me, and I'm thinking, I'm, my mind's playing tricks on me. There's nothing there. You know, you do that, right? You hear the crackling of the heat or something going, you know, there's no one. There, there's nothing. Suddenly, I'm, I'm up, and I'm looking, and I just see my face reflection in that weird way in the dark. And then, no, that's, that's a moose. There's a giant moose head just eating and chomping, you know? And it just, it ignored me, and then it trotted off. It was fine. But... You know, the Lord, the Lord is, uh, I don't know how I'm going to connect that back to where I'm going. I just couldn't resist. It's just fun to live in Alaska. It's fun to tell stories about things and the adventure of preaching, the adventure of opening the word. I, I have so much, so much material here. I know I'm not getting to the second half of it. And uh, I just want to be patient to walk through what the Lord has for us this morning. Let's look at um, these verses at the end of a section that I've called the comfort of Christ on the mission, he's called the, the apostles, he called the 12, verses 1 to 4. He commissioned the 12 to go out in, to, the lost sheep, to, to preach the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, verse 6. He, uh, he, he then cautioned the apostles, saying he's sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves, for them to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And then with that cautioning comes comfort. And we picked that up at um, kind of verse 23, 24, and then plodded through to look at verse 29. Are not 
two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God loves us. He wants to comfort us. He's called us into a hard mission. The kinds of persecution that they would face, we will face. We have faced um, persecution from religious um, efforts. There are religious persecution that happens. There is religious persecution that happens either within the church or the church community. People doubt. People rise up from within and try to stir trouble. There is um, persecution for standing for truth, even in the church. But then also, secondly, there's persecution that comes from governing authorities. In this time period where the apostles were, it was Rome. There was Roman persecution that was synchronized with uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious persecution. And they were, they were beating the apostles for um, preaching the gospel. And that happens to Christians today, even in our world. And then finally, a level of a third level of persecution not just religious not just government but the third level that can hit very personally is being persecuted in your own home for the sake of Christ persecuted by friends and by those who are your own flesh and blood this is the persecution of the believer in the home where suddenly your your stance on truth is causing you to be hated for the sake of Christ, and you see in verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This is a picture of what has happened, will happen, and will increasingly happen as the heat turns up in our culture. We need, we need to be comforted. So there's some comfort here that follows the intimacy that God has on you. He's watching you just like he watches a bird hop, just like he knows every molecule of your um, body, how it's all coming together down to the very hairs of your head. They're all numbered. He says, fear not. And why? Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. What's he saying here? He's saying there is acknowledgement in heaven on your behalf. He cares about you just like he's watching you in your day-to-day. A sparrow hopping is like your life activities that he's watching. He cares to feed you. He cares to minister to you. He cares to bring like a little moose to or big moose to encourage me in my sermon preparation. Uh, He cares about little details even in our daily lives as we talk to people and things are happening to us. He cares, he cares, but he cares so much more than just daily circumstances. He cares to vouch for you in heaven. If you acknowledge him on earth, he's acknowledging you in heaven. There's advocacy on your behalf in heaven. You say, I'm a sinner. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm up to. As a believer, you have Christ Jesus as your great advocate who loves you and vouches for you. In heaven, if you acknowledge me before men, I also will acknowledge you or acknowledge um, you before my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, this acknowledgement is advocacy. First John 2 gives us a window into what that looks like. First John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Any believer has Jesus in heaven face to face with his father on your behalf. 
The original language there is prostantheon. It's eyeball to eyeball with the Father. Uh, it's been misportrayed that Jesus is the good version of God, and God, as he's portrayed in the Old Testament, is the bad version of God. That's a false bifurcation. That is not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his compassions and uh, you know his everlasting arms of, of the portrayals of the Old Testament where he carried Israel through all of their undulations of apostasy and and where they would go into Baal worship or false worship and he would welcome them back and give them grace um, is the amazing heart of God that we see in the Old Testament. You see that also displayed in Christ in the New Testament. It's it's God and he's he's always had this plan to love you and advocate for you if he's called you to himself. For God so loved the world. This is God the Father. I loved the world. I loved you in the world so much that I gave my only son so that you'd believe in him, not perish, have everlasting life. This was the face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball covenant commitment on your behalf. You are protected within this relationship. But this extends to everyone that we preach the gospel to. And again, look at this verse. Everyone who acknowledges me. So as these apostles went out, as Jesus missionaries and people began to believe when those people acknowledged God, acknowledged Christ, they had the same vouchsafed advocacy from Jesus with the Father in heaven. Verse 2 of 1 John 2, um, 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. He, all of the enmity that was against us, all of the wrath that was against us was satisfied in the cross of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God was assuaged, was tamped down, was absorbed in the cross of Jesus. And so we are saved. There's a warning, though, in verse 33 of Matthew 10. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. There's a denial that happens. Now, who's saved and who isn't saved? Who who is genuinely believed and who is uh, faking it? Well... That's often hard to discern. Uh, there's a level at which we judge people by truth. We, want, we can examine our own hearts and know things by comparing our heart with what the gospel says a true Christian looks like and lives like. But then there's a sense in which there are people where we don't know where they are spiritually exactly. There's people who are faking it in the church. There's the wheat, there's the tares, there's the sheep, there's the goats. But then there's There are people at the same time, as this verse points out, who are overt, abject deniers. They say, I do not believe in Jesus Christ. I reject Jesus. I reject any notion that he is God or Savior. Those are the people that Jesus is warning and saying that if you deny me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Anyone, whoever does that, is denied in heaven. It's a sobering reality. But the same sobering reality of that denial, if you flip it on his head, is how solid it is on our behalf because we are confessing Jesus as Lord. So the sobriety of the denial can be flipped in terms of how secure we are. You say, well, how secure am I? How much do I have to confess as as saying Jesus is Lord? What kind of testimony do I have to have to know I'm secure? Well, a question like that, It's kind of like asking, how close can I fly to the sun without burning up? Or how much electricity can I tamper with before I'm electrocuted? It's like playing with fire. 
Um, knowing that you know God is, is a spiritual reality. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's not a measurement like math. It's not a measurement like science or history or a depth of knowledge. It's, it's God as he's bearing witness in your heart that you know him. That's what it means to know Jesus. Let me just um, read to you a bit of Paul's prayer about this. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named according to the riches of his glory that he may grant to you to be strengthened by the power of the spirit in in your inner being so that here it is. This is what it looks like to know Jesus and to know that you know Jesus. It's responding to a prayer like this in your heart. Listen, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean? It means that Paul was praying for people to really know that they know they're Christians. That's it. Because God is incomprehensible. He's great big. He's bigger than our finite minds. We're finite. He's infinite. He's great big. We're really small. But at the same time, we, like the saints of old, would pray and say, show me your glory. Remember the saint that said that? Show me your glory. And Jesus hid that saint in the cleft of the rock and passed by. And he just was able to see the backside of his glory as it passed by. Otherwise, he would have been incinerated. Well, as Christians... We get a small window by faith here on earth into God's glory. And Paul's praying here that they would know the height, depth, and length, and breadth. In other words, that they would begin to grasp how big and grand and incomprehensible this God is. And then look how he turns the corner in verse 18. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And to know that this God that's this great big loves me personally. That's what it means to know Jesus. That's what it means to know God. He's so big. He's so awesome. He's so glorious. And he loves me at the same time and knows me personally and cares about me, everything about me. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, she's sitting there. Jesus is conversing with her. Jesus is talking to her and she's trying to make a religious argument. Well, you know, I I perceive you're a prophet. Um, The Samaritans worship over here. The Jews, we know you worship here. It's a good religious argument. And really, she had all this sin in her life that was unconfessed. And, you know, Jesus exposes that and says, you know, you really have five husbands. You don't just have one, you have five. In other words, you're acting like you're married to five people. You're living in immoral sin. And we pick up on John 4, 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called God, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I speak to I who speak to you am he. Jesus then, had, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Listen to what faith looks like. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Listen, I just, I want to bring that little phrase up, that little question up to say, look, there are those who are actively denying Christ, who are not being acknowledged in heaven, who need to know the Lord. How much does it take to get them from there to heaven? It's just where God opens their heart. You have a conversation with them. You're willing to talk about sin and the need to love Jesus and know him. And then someone opens their heart and they go, I can't believe it. I'm awake. Wait, 
you're the Messiah. You are truly Jesus. You, you understand me. Could this be the Messiah? She was saved. That's what it looks like. You go, that's amazing. I, I just, I don't know, I was impressed to, to share those things so that you don't get so intimidated by these verses. Acknowledgement and being on the mission is just being on the mission, just, just living your life in the way God is opening it up, but it is following this plan and this path. And this is a path for the apostles that is also the mission of the ages for all believers of all times. So this applies to you. This is um, the, again, the calling, the commission, the caution, and then the, the comfort to the apostles. But finally, and I want to say this, all of what I just preached is the anchor to what I'm about to bring up, which is the challenge of the mission that you are to be on, the challenge. This passage is a hard-hitting challenge. It's so high bar and it's so hard hitting that it would be easy to dismiss and say, this doesn't apply to me. This, does, this is not my mission. This is the apostle's mission, but this doesn't jive with what I signed up for in being a Christian. Well, listen to what Jesus says. This is the challenge to the 12. It's challenging the 12. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, this is the challenge. He's moving from the comfort you're advocated for. You acknowledge Jesus, he's got you. But now that you're all anchored up and you know he is, you know, I am his and he is mine. I'm like the woman at the well. I'm saved. He saved me. I know he's Messiah. I'm there. So now what does this challenge look like? Well, it looks like um, a very high bar challenge, a 100% commitment to Christ, a 100% bowed submission to the lordship of Christ at all cost. It's the kind of commitment that not only where God has changed you on the inside, but it's a change on the inside that affects everything on the outside. And guess where it's affecting things in this text? In the home. Remember we talked about levels and layers of persecution, religious persecution, government persecution, family persecution. This is where it targets the heart and where Jesus is really challenging believers to say, am I going to go on this mission? Am I going to take part in this kind of work? You know, half measures are so uninspiring to me. I don't like half measures in work assignments. I don't like half measures in friendships. I don't like uh, people who go halfway in marriage. People go halfway in parenting. Um, these all things, especially in sports, I can't stand people who just mail it in in sports. All these things are discouraging. And when you see people who are really, really pouring it on in any life discipline, it can be very, very inspiring. Um, when I preach, um, I, you know, I preach with everything I've got. 
And a lot of times people will say, well, you do things the way you do it because of your temperament, because you're kind of, you know, ramped up or energized. But I know that this passage is calling people and challenging everyone, no matter what your personality is, whether you're a classic stoic or melancholy, you're, you're called to be all in for Christ. And even as you sit there, and I know that, you know, a lot of you aren't ameners out there, and, and you sit there and you kind of look at me and stare at me. I know, I hear, I hear that, I hear that. And, you know, you, you might be more stoic. You know, we're Alaskans here. We don't, you know, do that. But you write it down. I know, I see it, you know, and you can email me amens if you want to. But, but um, you know, we're talking about eternity. Or we're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, having intimate interest in your heart and life. We should be excited about that. God is... Uh, Excited about your life, and even as you sit there motionless, and we define, you know, and, and talk through eternal verities of the faith, we should be excited. These verses are your verses, and Christ is calling us to go on the mission and to receive these, not like a son or daughter hearing something from a parent or a coach saying, hey, let's take things to the next level. No, this is Christian life. This is Christian life. When you Believe this and see this not as something that is too out there for you to really do and live, then things change around you. Not only are things changing in you, things will change around you. I have a, a workout coach that will often say to a class, you know, um, there's, there's something when you, when you really give full effort, there's change going on. Something's changing inside of you. And this person will always say, if it's not challenging you, then it's not changing you. And so this is the challenge that brings about change. And it's not just change inside, it's change on the outside. So many Christians are kind of bored with church. Well, God is not boring because God is this infinite, awesome God. And a lot of people grade what church they're going to go to based on whether or not their kids are jazzed by being there or not. But God is not boring. God is the point. And church should not be boring, but not because of programs, but because we understand who this God really is. God is dramatic in what he's calling Christians to do and to believe. Joining church is not joining a health club, a Bible study, or admittance into a trade school or college. Joining church is joining Christ in this mission. To recoil at this mission is to recoil at Christ's call on your life. That's what's here. That's what this is. I, um, I like sports. I like competition. Some of you know that. I, I play club water polo. I play polo not because I'm real good at it or whatever, but it is a good way to get out into the world and, and to meet people. I try to get them to come here to church and um, you know sit in a little section or whatever because I've known these people for nine years. They haven't shown up yet. But, um, but I talk to them on a weekly basis. And what I do is I go, I play that game because I was introduced to it to rest my brain because when you play all you can think about you're so anaerobic and you're so out of breath and you feel like you're going to die the whole time all you can think is pass shoot duck drown fight i mean you have a dog brain that's it you can think one thing at a time and that's that's all you do but it also makes you prepare in the week and so i will swim a couple times a week usually and i was swimming next to this guy and he's this 
you know, six foot four guy, looks like a fish, and he's 10 years older than me, and he's just smoking me. We're in the same lane, and we're doing these, um, these reps and things, and the guy on the, the side of the, the pool is yelling at us to go at certain points, and this guy's going, come on, Jeff, go, 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 and I'm just dying. And so between sets, I asked him, I said, so what's your swimming background or whatever? And he's like, well, I was, you know, competitive, and I was training for in, in tryouts for the 84 Olympics and this and this. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, what am I doing here? And uh, at, the, at the end, he said, we've swam an hour. I'll go 600 yards. You go 300 yards, and you try to beat me, and it'll be a chase. This will be fun. And I'm like, man, I'm exhausted. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Why did I say let's go? Why? Because it's inspiring. Because you're being pushed. That's what Jesus wants for your life. He wants you to read this and go, this is horrible, but it's a mission that I'm willing to go into. And you say, well, what, what does this really mean? What is this about for me? A calling, a commissioning, a cautioning, a comforting, and now a challenge. Well, if you're taking notes, what changes when you accept Jesus' challenge? What's going to change in your environment? Number one, your home life is going to change. Because point one, a sword enters the home. A sword enters the home. That's verses 34 and 35. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Stop there. You go, well, what is up with that? This is the upside down kingdom because I thought Jesus loved the family. He made the family. He instituted it. Well, he instituted um, the church. And he also instituted government. And he also instituted the family. And all three of those arenas are going to persecute the true church and true believers. Sin corrupts. Sin poisons. Sin sullies the environment. And when you inject a gospel witness into a, a home life culture, the atmosphere changes. The barometric pressure rises. You get a fired up kid that comes home from Bible college that comes into sort of a take it or leave it Christian home that's like, or kind of a Christian home in name only, suddenly there'll be some sparks that'll fly. There'll be some debates that'll happen. There might be some arguments that take place. There might be some ultimates that really cook. Is God behind that? Well, remember, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 7 predicted that he would be the Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah 2, 4 speaks of a time when they'll beat out the swords and the plowshares and their spears, they'll turn into pruning hooks. So all of that was uh, predicted in Isaiah. Luke 2, 4, when Jesus came, glory to God in the highest, 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he would be pleased. John 14, 27, Jesus at the end of his ministry, comforting the apostles before he was going to the cross. Peace, I leave with you my peace I give to you. Not as to the world gives, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What is he, what is he talking about? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He leaves peace. He gives peace. The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is peace, right? We are reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. He gives us peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore. We're right with God. We're at peace. So if Jesus is all about peace, what are you talking about here where he brings a sword into your home? It's because 
the spiritual peace that we experience in our heart by the gospel is not the same thing that is happening on the outside with people where there is broken peace. There is reconciled peace in our hearts. And then as we come into a situation and we stand for truth, it breaks the peace out there. What's happening in here is different than what's happening out there. That's all Jesus is doing. He's dealing with sin. Jesus is not the problem. Jesus is not the troublemaker. Sin is. Sin is what creates the, the, the weird environment. As a Christian, you go, man, I'm walking into an environment that feels icy and tense and weird and awkward. Well, what's wrong? Is it Jesus that's the problem? Is it Jesus in you that's the problem? Is it the truth that you're talking about at the dinner table that's the problem? No, sin is the problem. Jesus, watch this, here's the order of things, deals with the sin so that he can bring the peace. He puts you into hostile environments where you have to deal on his behalf as his emissary, as his ambassador, as his missionary. You're dealing with the sin to bring about the peace. It's broken on the outside so that people can be reborn on the inside and be right with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So people are choosing, I'm a friend of the world or I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of the world. I'm not a friend of God. I'm an enemy of God. If I'm a friend of Christ, then I'm an enemy of the world. It's this contrast that is taking place. Doctrine will divide. The gospel will divide. It will draw a line. Choose you this day whom you will serve says the Old Testament, right? One or the other. It's not overkill to say Jesus didn't come to unify, but he came to divide. Jesus is not the God of social justice. He came to create a chasm and separation between light and darkness so people could choose the light. That's the first measure that Jesus brings. He didn't come to make people feel happy or better or overlook faults. He said, I'm coming to bring a sword. You know what a sword is? It's a device of death. It's something that cuts. It's uh, something that's scary. That's a cool weapon, just in terms of weapons as they go, and might be fun to look at or or swing around or hit. But I personally, I just got to say, would not really want to get into a sword fight with anybody. I wouldn't because sometimes I lose. I lose in competitions or whatever. And if you lose in a sword fight, well, I guess you die. That's kind of bad. Um, I, I talked to an L.A. Um, county sheriff one time, a guy who came up here, and we were talking about knives and guns, and he loves that. And we were pulling all our stuff out. And, and he's like, yeah. He said, uh, they teach you, they train you that if you get in a knife fight, just expect to be cut like you're going to be cut. Well, with a sword, if you get cut, you die because they're ultimate weapons. And that's The symbol Jesus uses here to say a sword has come into the house. Will you side with the sword of the Lord or against? Martin Luther said, if our gospel were received in peace, it would not be the true gospel. And he was the progenitor as a preacher and teacher of the greatest rift in history, in the history of religion, which is the Protestant Reformation, where the recovery of the gospel took place. This is Christ. He's fighting fire with fire. He's bringing war against war. Spurgeon said in the act of producing peace, the peace of heaven, he arouses the rage of hell. Truth provokes opposition. Jesus didn't call us to ignore sin, but to what? Kill it. To kill it dead. When people say, oh, just cover that with grace. 
Just ignore. Don't talk about it. Just look the other way. Just cover, cover, cover. I mean, I understand the sense of that, the sentiment of that. We want to be gracious. We want to forgive 70 times 7. We don't want to dredge things up and parade them in front of people. We want to forgive and forget. I mean, I understand that concept. Really, the, the, the um, truth of the scripture where it says cover or love covers a multitude of sins is saying that you don't bring it back up and you don't parade people's dirty laundry out in front of other people. The covering comes by the grace of the gospel, not because we've ignored it. Sin has to be dealt with. It has to be confessed. It has to be um, sought forgiveness over. It has, you have to reconcile relationships. This is part of the roll up, roll up your sleeves, part of the gospel. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying uh, you come and you give the gospel. When is he going to bring ultimate peace, by the way? Ultimate peace on earth and all of the pictures in Isaiah of, you know, the the swords being beaten out and turned into farm equipment and things like that. And the new heavens and the new earth, all that's going to happen in the end. We're going to talk about that beginning this evening with end time studies. But but for now, we have to deal with sin with the gospel until Jesus returns in Revelation 19 15. It says when he returns in the end from his mouth comes a sharp what? sword, a two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and will, tr- will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. He deals with the sin before he brings heaven on earth. The goal is peace, but never through passive resignation. Never through that. Jesus was even um, disbelieved by his own family when he started his mission. Here you have Mary, who is uh, the mother of Jesus, and she saw the prophecies, and she, she you know, prayed that beautiful prayer when she was told that she was with child, with the Messiah, and all of that was being told to her. But then later, as Jesus was on mission, in Mark 3, verse 20, it says, then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again. He's with his disciples, right? And it says, so that they could not even eat the disciples, they couldn't even eat. There's, this is the mission. They're just given the gospel and they're running out of food. And it says, and when his family heard it, they went out and, to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. They didn't even get it. This is Mary included. This John 7, before the Feast of Tabernacles, the half-brothers of Jesus mocked Jesus. And they said, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, John 7, 4. For not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't get it. The air was thin and awkward, even in the home of Jesus. What kind of divide? What does this look like? Look at verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You say, this just feels weird. That's Jesus' agenda to mess up a home life? Well, things get messy when you start talking about sin. When you talk about The way to get somebody to peace is by repenting of the thing that you're hiding or the thing that you're doing or the thing you won't let go of. We're going to talk about that somehow, some way. Makes it awkward. It can stir the pot. It will stir the pot. And it takes work to go there and a lot of faith to do that. Jesus meant to do this. It seems counterintuitive. Jesus is for peace in the home, but never at the expense of addressing sin. Never at the expense of excusing sin. 
divisions, man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is comforting in one sense because it's all too familiar to all of us, isn't it? We've seen this before. We know this is real. Uh, You sit there, and again, part of the stoicism, I get it, it's fine, it's fine, we can be there, that's good. This is a sobering topic, but it's awful. When families divide over Christ, it's awful. And it's not something we're celebrating, but it's something that we need to be warned of and prepared for and challenged by. And go, this is hard, I'm going to embrace what's hard and go through this mission. I'm going to go through with it. People's consciences become constricted in homes where truth is presented and people want to ignore and hide their sins. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Even if our house becomes a den of lions to us, we must stand up for the Lord. The peace at any price people have no portion in his kingdom. Peace at all cost, peace at all cost, peace at all cost. That's not the gospel. You say, well, how powerful is this? When you have a born-again nature, you have a different nature than an unbeliever. That's why in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, what fellowship, this is what in common with, what koinonia has light with darkness? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is a rhetorical question, and the answer is nothing, nothing. The natural person will not understand the things of the Spirit of God. So you just have to know that. You just have to get comfortable with what's very, very awkward. They're blind. They need to see. And so you're a missionary in that moment. You're on mission for God's glory. Deuteronomy 22.10, "'You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together.'" Two different kinds of animals with two different natures. If you put a yoke on it, it's going to go like that. So if you try to like fake it together, let's just patch it up. Let's just go to church together and just pretend we're in fellowship. That doesn't work. I'm not saying you don't take an unbeliever to church. I'm not saying you don't try to do things in friendship and relationship. I'm not saying that there's always separation in that regard. But I am saying that it's going to be awkward and there is a sword There is a sword, and everybody sees it, and everybody knows it. Look at verse 36. It says, A person's enemies (coughs) will be those of his own household. Those of his own household. How strong is this? I want to just turn your attention back to one more place. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 13. You might turn over there. Paul was talking about in a home when a spouse believes and you have an unbeliever, there is a divide in the home. But if that unbelieving spouse is willing to live within that awkwardness, it's good for that spouse. When you become a believer and you're married to an unbeliever in the home, stick it out. Why? Because that unbeliever is under a powerful witness. That contrast that goes where the husband's praying or the wife is praying, you know, and vice versa. The one's hardened and one's soft. That contrast makes the gospel demonstrative in the home. It does. And especially the kids that are watching, they're like, whoa, this is powerful. So if, they're, if you're willing to, if the spouse is willing to stay there, don't divorce her. 
He says, to the rest I say, not the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7, 12, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Why? Here it is, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. What does that mean? An unbelieving spouse is easily won by a believing spouse in the home. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. It's not automatic. It is always grace through faith alone that someone is saved. They have to believe to be saved. But it's a powerful witness. Listen to this. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Children in the home of a believer, especially a faithful believer who's not kicking out the unbeliever, either through the war of attrition... (laughs) or through neglect or whatever, but is making it work, that's such a powerful splash effect witness on the kids that they are considered holy. They're set apart. They're like really listening to what's going on. They're wide open when they see this dynamic. First Peter 3, 1, that's what it's talking about. It's the submission of evangelism where you have First uh, Peter 3, 1, when your, it says women or wives, win your husband without speaking a word. Win them with the good um, works of godliness and submission. Win them without a word, like Sarah did of old to Abraham. Husbands, likewise, in 1 Peter 3, 7, they, they should be like Hosea, who lived with a rebellious wife named Gomer and lived in an understanding way. 1 Peter 3, 7, live with your wives in an understanding ways so that your prayers won't be hindered. In other words, you're just putting up with it. Why? Because you're trying to win her to Christ. Or the, husband, or the wife is, is trying to win the husband to Christ through righteousness. It's a difficult path. It's a hard mission, but it's a predicted one here in Matthew 10 as well. What does this practically look like? Well, it all begins with our hearts, with our hearts. The next three points that I'm going to bring up next week um, is all of the sort of soul work that you do in your own heart to prepare yourself to live in an environment like this one. So if you want to learn how to make it through this kind of tense environment, extended family situations, blended family situations, your own personal home life situation, this is the heart work that you have to do to be prepared for this kind of environment. There's religious persecution, government persecution, then there's home life persecution that's been poisoned by unresolved sin. How do we prepare for the battle? Let's find out next week. Let's find out next week. You can read ahead, obviously, but 